From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, we're in uncharted waters here. This is historic. We've never had a speaker removed. Republicans in the U.S. House are meeting right now to try to elect a new Speaker of the House. It's a contentious process that two of our AJC colleagues are on the Hill to cover. I'm Patricia Murphy. The takeaway after Tuesday's series of GOP meetings, nobody has enough votes to be the next Speaker yet, and nobody in the conference knows who will. And also from Washington, I'm Tia Mitchell. Without a speaker in place, the House is left at a standstill, unable to pass legislation, including anything to support Israel. And I'm Greg Bluestein. In a remarkable rally last night, thousands of Georgians and dozens of elected officials gathered to show support for Israel and hunker down for what could be an extended political fight. We invite you to join us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. We're covering some significant developing stories today in both Washington, here in Atlanta, and in the Middle East. Patricia Murphy and Tia Mitchell are both live up on the Hill in Washington right now, where Republicans are trying to get through uh, the controversies, the fights, and elect a new Speaker of the House. We're going to hear from them in uh, just a minute. And in the meantime, um, as the war in Israel against Hamas unfolds, there was a major rally in Sandy Springs last night where as many as 4,000 people showed up to show their solidarity with Israel. One of them was Rabbi Mark Goodman. You have no idea how touching and reassuring it is to the Jewish community just to know that we're not alone. Greg Bluestein, you're here in the studio with me today. You were at the rally last night. It was apparently a remarkable event. Yeah, it was really touching. It was emotional. It was amazing to see 4,000 or so people gather at City Springs in the heart of Sandy Springs, really in the heart of Atlanta's Jewish community, to show unity and support with Israel. It wasn't just Jewish leaders, although there's many of them. I saw a diverse coalition of political leaders, of community leaders, of clergy, Christian, Islamic, Jewish, of course. Uh, all show a sign of support. There's going to be a long battle ahead, right? And that was the underlying message from all the leaders that it's going to be a long, brutal, bloody fight in Israel. And they were asking this community to show support for the long haul. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in much more depth a little bit later in our podcast. But in the meantime, uh, Patricia and Tia are up on the hill right now, where if they're on schedule, 
members of the Republican conference should be behind closed doors right now trying to decide on who the next Speaker of the House will be. Patricia, Tia? I'll start. It's almost like yes and no. Like, yes, at some point today, they are supposed to take a secret ballot vote. But the timing, because they also have like these briefings on Israel scheduled, some rules changes they want to discuss, such as whether requiring whoever is the speaker's nominee to get 217 Republican Republicans to support them before going to the floor for the official vote with Democrats. So they have a lot of things to sort out. So the timing's still uncertain on as to when they're actually going to say, do we choose Scalise or Jim Jordan or someone else? Patricia, you went up uh, because you wanted to be part of this coverage and talk to a number of our members. How is our delegation shaping up in terms of this fight? So the Georgia delegation is splitting in much the same way that the entire Republican conference is splitting. Um, Rich McCormick this morning announced that he'll be supporting Jim Jordan. Andrew Clyde has already announced that he's also going to support Jim Jordan. Um, Tia and I spoke with Buddy Carter yesterday. He is very firmly in the Steve Scalise camp. Um, These uh, individual members have different relationships with these two gentlemen. Um, Scalise is seen uh, by his detractors as part of the problem. He's been part of the GOP leadership with Kevin McCarthy for many years. Um, But at the same time, Jim Jordan has always been such an outside agitator to leadership. Um, We're hearing from some Republicans who feel like he's not a good fit to actually be a leader. We heard, um, I spoke with one Republican yesterday who said, I don't want to be in this conference if Jim Jordan is the conference. So these are not um, benign feelings about these gentlemen. People feel very strongly about it. Um, And then at the same time, um, the House itself right now is in complete paralysis. Um, The chamber cannot take up legislation. They can't conduct votes. They are not having committee hearings right now. And so even as the administration briefed members this morning at 830 on Israel and what Israel needs from the United States, Congress cannot pass that legislation, um, as far as anybody knows at this point, without a speaker in place. So they have major issues to deal with. And as Tia said, it's very unclear how or when that will be resolved. Patricia, let me make sure I understand the process. They're in closed door meetings right now, apparently. At, at, At this meeting, they are going to see if they can arrive at a consensus vote and, in fact, uh, get a majority of the conference to vote for a given or, or the, the necessary votes to elect a new speaker. If they should accomplish that, then they will come out and at some point, presumably later today or tonight, have an actual vote on the floor. If I got, Is that the way the process is supposed to unfold? Uh, generally, with the with the slight um, with the slight detail that I'll add, um, as Tia said, there is currently debate among these members about whether to emerge from that meeting where it's secret ballot. So the the two gentlemen have no idea who's voting for or against them. Can they emerge from this meeting with a simple majority of the Republican conference in order to take it to the floor? That's what Steve Scalise wants to do because they believe he has more votes right now than Jim Jordan. That is the current House rule. There is another group of Republicans who wants to change the House rule this morning, or the conference rule, rather. They want to change the conference rule that you have to get to 217 before you take it to the floor. They want that level 
of visible support behind one of these two gentlemen because they don't want what they all agree was, in their words, a clown show with Kevin McCarthy going to 15 votes. It just demonstrated the lack of support that McCarthy had. Everybody knew who his problems were going to be. It was no secret. Many Republicans want to get that done in private before they sort of take their laundry to the House floor. They want to get the laundry clean and folded first. Tia, you've been watching this day in and day out, and I think you're somewhat pessimistic about the ability of the conference to come to a decision today. Well, I'm pessimistic because kind of something that we mentioned yesterday, which is just the simple math of it all. So 217 is a majority of the overall House, which there are 435 seats, but two are currently vacant. So 217 right now is a House majority. That's what you need to become Speaker. There are 221 Republicans in the House, which means you need all but you can only lose four. And again, we know that McCarthy lost eight. We know what Patricia mentioned. There are some people in swing districts, more moderate Republicans who are very uncomfortable with Jim Jordan being speaker. Would would they be willing to hold their nose if he gets a majority support and say, because in the past, that's what happened. You had an internal election. Whoever got the majority support within the um, ruling party was then the speaker candidate and everyone else was expected to fall in line. Greg, jump Will in. Will that happen? Oh, I'm sorry, uh, no. uh, Tia. Greg, jump in. Yeah, no, it's going to be really fascinating. It looks like the factions are digging in up there in Washington. You guys are so close to the action up there, but it looks like there could be a, a drawn out fight with no house leader uh, for the foreseeable future, at least for a few days. And Patricia, what I'm, I'm curious is you've, Tia has been here, been covering this for a while. You're kind of a fresher perspective just coming in. Of course, you've been following this. What was it like yesterday and, and early this morning going around the halls of Capitol? What's the atmosphere like there with all this gridlock? Well, it's wild. The atmosphere of Congress generally is like a school during summer vacation. There there were very few people on the Hill yesterday. There is no work, no work of the country to conduct until there's a speaker. Now go behind these closed door meetings and it is a frenzied effort among Republicans to get a speaker in place and start to work through these hugely important issues, especially Israel. But that pressure from the Israeli war um, is not making people come off of where they want these speakers to be. Um, and a quick wild card, some of these members still want Kevin McCarthy. Some of these members I spoke with this morning are talking about a third candidate we're not talking about right now. So they are. it feels like they're really far from a resolution. Patricia, you mentioned that you and Tia talked to uh, Buddy Carter uh, yesterday. And in fact, Buddy Carter told you that he has some real concerns about the paralysis in the House, especially because of the Israeli war going on right now. Let's listen. I am concerned about that because Israel needs our help now. And, and, and that, it, that should be an impetus for us to get something done and for us to get a speaker as soon as possible. Greg, there's, it's not only a matter of whether or not the House will come together if a new appropriation is needed for Israel, although the administration claims they have a lot of money in the pipeline that already will go to Israel, but there's also something around the 
ability of the House to come together and say that we're a united front and give moral support to the war of, against uh, Hamas. Exactly. And to show the U.S. rivals, you know, anyone who might uh, overseas be looking to uh, pick at you, you, America's vulnerabilities right now to show that there is a united front, that there is a governing body, because we know that nothing substantial can get done in Washington without some sort of House leader right now. And that's the tricky situation that the U.S. is in right now. Patricia, is anybody talking about Kevin McCarthy? McCarthy, as we know, held this news conference on Monday in which he sort of went to the same podium he used as speaker. He kind of sounded as if he was still the speaker in the way he talked about what he wants to accomplish in terms of the war that's now underway. Is is there buzz about him at all coming back? Oh, excuse me, Bill. Last night, Kevin McCarthy held a massive gaggle with reporters for, Tia, was it 15 or 20 minutes? He was talking about American leadership. He was talking about, we'll leave no American behind. He was speaking like he is the speaker. It was very bizarre. It was bizarre. And then at some point, to make it even more bizarre, the interim speaker had to like squeeze behind McCarthy to get to the meeting room because McCarthy was holding court with so many journalists. We're all thirsty for interviews because like over a hundred journalists, wouldn't you agree, um, Patricia, were there in the hallway, at least a hundred. And so you have the former speaker acting like he's still speaker, the interim speaker just trying to get to the room and having to squeeze by. Well, okay, given all that, Is there going to be an effort among all of those who supported him and were so angry at the eight who voted him out to try to get McCarthy back into this to give him give him the speaker's gavel, Patricia? Bill, it's those eight votes. It's those eight no votes. None of them is willing to come off of that. They all had their reasons for saying no to McCarthy in the first place. Um, One uh, one of whom, uh, Tim Burchett from Tennessee, said, look, I voted for the guy 15 times. And I'm a no. I need somebody new. So we've not heard from a single one of the eight who they're going to support, although many of them, except Nancy Mace, are staying mum because I think they're looking to extract some more promises from whoever it might be. I'm curious, Tia, uh, getting to the nitty gritty politics of it all, who in the Georgia delegation stands to gain if Kevin McCarthy comes back, if it's Steve Scalise, if it's Jim Jordan? So... Of course, if Kevin McCarthy comes back, probably the person who has the most to gain is Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene because she was so um, aligned with him. He really helped elevate her, gave her some plum committee positions. He kind of treated her the way I think that the Nancy Maces and the Matt Gateses of the world wanted to be treated. And they turned on McCarthy in part because they didn't feel like he, he welcomed them the way that He welcomed Marjorie Taylor Greene. That being said, um, we talked um, on background with an MTG source, Patricia and I did, who said, you know, um, she's cordial with Scalise, but she has a better relationship with Jim Jordan. But she has Marjorie Taylor Greene has not endorsed one way or another with either of those candidates. Drew Ferguson, for example, is very aligned with Steve Scalise, uh, was his deputy whip when he was whip the last Congress. So we could expect if Scalise, for example, were to emerge as speaker, Drew Ferguson would probably get some benefit from that. Um, If Jim Jordan were to emerge, you would think Andrew Clyde 
who was the first Georgia lawmaker to endorse Jim Jordan. He's Andrew Clyde is in the House Freedom Caucus with Jim Jordan. Perhaps Andrew Clyde could get a boost under a Jim Jordan speakership. So, Greg, you know what's fascinating about this, of course, is Tia mentions Marjorie Taylor Greene was allied so closely with Kevin McCarthy. And we all agreed back when McCarthy was having such a difficult time getting elected as speaker that she made a very savvy move um, to endorse him and then become one of his closest allies in the House. And it moved her from being um, the object of ridicule as a far-right outsider to being a significant power in the House. But it strikes me, just in thinking about her alone, she has a brand new calculation to figure out yeah. in terms of how she might retain that uh, that power that she got under McCarthy. Yeah, under Speaker McCarthy, she goes from pariah to power broker, right? Key committee posts that she had been stripped of, uh, you know, just a few, uh, just a year or so earlier, um, a real pivotal role in some of the key decisions that that House leadership made, and now. You know, she's the chief, one of the chief allies, chief supporters of Kevin McCarthy's comeback bid. So if he does manage to come back, you could see her, as Tia said, right in the middle of everything. Um, but another new speaker would not necessarily put her at the center of everything, especially it might maybe perhaps if it's Jim Jordan. You guys can elaborate on that. But, um, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene bolts from the House Freedom Caucus, is is not as closely allied with some of Jim Jordan's uh, chief deputies as 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 others in the Georgia caucus. Yeah, um, although it's important to know that when the Freedom Caucus was voting to oust uh, Green, uh, Jim Jordan was one of her defenders in that process and said, I really don't think that this group should should take this step against Green. So he was never one of the people looking to get rid of her. And I'm sure she remembers that as well. Patricia, I you covered the Hill for a long time. And before you covered it as a journalist, you worked on the Hill. Um, uh, for Max Cleland, before that for Sam Nunn. Now you're back up there. You obviously make occasional trips up there. But I am curious, as you got up there yesterday and started wandering through the halls looking for people to talk to, how different does the, does the Congress feel, the House particularly, to you today than it did back in the day when you were there all the time and regular order was typical, where there was some comedy among them. How different does it feel now up there? You know, it really feels very different. And even members of the House and staffers will say, I, I don't recognize what's happening right now. This moment in time where the House caucus cannot pick a speaker and has deposed their old speaker without a plan to go forward Um is something nobody recognizes. This is the place where there are giants of leadership. Uh, you know, there was Tip O'Neill, there's Nancy Pelosi, even John Boehner was so beloved by so many members of his caucus. Um, this is just not how the Hill operates, especially the House side. It typically invests so much power in the speaker that this this never would have happened to so many others. And even somebody like Newt Gingrich truly was the leader of that caucus. He had his detractors, but he led them. They felt like he was leading them into battle. And this feels like a headless giant right now. Um, and there's immense anxiety on within the Republican caucus. They know this looks bad and they're very worried they can't get their act together. And they're extremely worried about the fate of Israel as all of this is spiraling out of control. Yeah, Tia, before we have to move on, uh, let, let's talk about that just briefly. Uh, Greg um, referred to it. But um, Israel is in crisis right now. And the support of um, 
the, our elected officials in Washington is, is more crucial than ever before. And yet you're pessimistic that we're going to be able to find a solution. They'll find a way to get a speaker in place and try to establish some unity around the support for Israel. Yeah, we um, two things. As mentioned earlier, um, there was a classified briefing this morning. I'm already seeing on social media posts about lawmakers looking so emotional and just disturbed coming out of that briefing as we record right now. And then in this morning's jolt, we talked about there's a resolution that was drafted. It came out with 390 co-sponsors out again out of 433 members. And that's a feat that was established over a holiday weekend. For example, Marjorie Taylor Greene wasn't one of the 390, but her office says, yeah, she's going to sign it. So you're talking about a resolution with overwhelming bipartisan support that cannot be brought to the floor. And this is the resolution, you know, showing support for Israel and condemning Hamas. Um, the White House says it has some flexibility to send some resources, but to get some real money appropriated will require an act of Congress. You cannot do that without a House speaker. So, Greg, let, let's add one other element to all of this. Um, we know that among Republicans, the uh, effort to stop funding uh, Ukraine, to stop sending new monies to Ukraine, has gained momentum. It went from being kind of an outsider, right-wing demand, and now it is more mainstream than ever before. In the meantime, the White House is hoping to couple aid to Israel to aid to Ukraine, and I can only imagine that as the speaker candidates, uh, Scalise and Jordan, talk to their members, they're talking about what they do about Ukraine, whether they even bring to the floor a vote that would couple aid to Ukraine and to Israel. I think this initiative will really, if it goes forward, really test the bounds of the U.S. alliance with Israel. And that that firm commitment we have bipartisan from Republicans and Democrats towards is Israel's security, because while most Republicans are offering unequivocal support for Israel right now in a way that they haven't with Ukraine, if this drags on or if this is coupled with Ukrainian aid, like some Republicans and some Democrats want it to be, it will really test that the balance of that strength. All right. Um, Patricia and Tia, you have a big day in store for you up there. I, I know you're both going to be watching it closely. Um, should I assume? I, I, I don't even think I have to assume. I, as things develop, you'll be filing on AJC.com. Tom, uh, uh, Patricia, we look forward to what you reported on and Tia as well. And we're going to let you go so you can get back up there to stake out the meeting of the Republican conference. But uh, thank you so much for spending time with us on Politically Georgia uh, today. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. 
We think that the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics, and you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast. You'll get six months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. So go to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast so you'll always know what's really going on. So Greg and I are continuing in the studio while Patricia and Tia are up at the Hill where they're going to be following whatever happens in the speaker's battle, and we'll be reporting on it for AJC.com and, of course, in tomorrow's paper. So, um, Greg, let's turn. There's a lot that still needs to be unpacked about the Hamas terrorist attacks in Israel um, and how Israel is responding, how the world is rallying to support Israel for the most part. But why don't we start with the local angle on this? Last night in Sandy Springs, um, there was a rally, a solidarity rally. You were there. Some 4,000 people was the estimate that showed up to say they stand with Israel. Talk about what that experience was like. Yeah, 4,000 people on short notice. They packed City Springs Theater. They packed an overflow theater. They packed the lawn outside. Diverse crowd. Uh, many familiar faces, but many unfamiliar faces. And just the scene of dozens of elected officials, Democrats, Republicans, um, nonpartisan officials who were all there to show their support. But again, the underlying message was hunker down because right now it's top of mind. It's, it's sort of easier to support Israel right now um, because of the atrocities that happened uh, in southern Israel with the, the shock Hamas invasion over the weekend. But it's going to be a long and grueling war ahead for Israel. Uh, they're making div- preparations for what could be a ground invasion of Gaza that will not be pretty. And a lot of civilians will lose their lives. And lot, there will be a lot of uh, unintended uh, casualties uh, from, from non-militants. And the message was, hey, Israel's got the right to defend its sovereign territory. Um, Rusty Paul, the mayor of Sandy Springs, a Republican official, got, I think, the, the loudest applause of anyone, it seemed, we're just saying Israel's got, it's got, I'm paraphrasing here, but Israel has the right to fight evil. And the only way to fight evil is to end evil. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating about um, the coming together of community here in Georgia, but also in Israel, is we, we, we're dealing with two countries uh, where there have been enormous political divides that have polarized the country. In Israel, of course, Benjamin Netanyahu's decision to form a government with the farthest right uh, uh, numbers of um, the Israeli uh, leadership uh, to try to uh, cut back on the powers of the Israeli Supreme Court led to enormous upheaval in the country. I mean, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of Israelis marching in the streets opposing uh, Netanyahu, members of the military saying they did not want to continue their duty uh, because of what Netanyahu is trying uh, to do. Um, and yet, and yet, we now know that just a little while ago, a bulletin moved saying that uh, the Israelis have come together. Knesset has said, yes, we will form a unity government to attack um, this horrendous uh, 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 terrorist assault on our country. And here, 
in, in Georgia, as well as much of the United States, the Jewish community has had a big divide, too, in terms of Israel. There are those who have been staunch supporters of Israel at all costs, no matter what uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has done in terms of moving further to the right. And as you know, there have been parts of the Jewish community that have been very upset that, um, that the country has not done more uh, to support democracy under Netanyahu and who feel that the Palestinians have not been treated fairly. And yet now we have a coming together here as well. Yeah, and look, that, that frustration with Israeli policies hasn't gone away, right. either in Israel or here in the U.S. There's still plenty of reasons uh, for, for Benjamin Netanyahu's critics to bring up uh, their, their frustration and outrage with his policies. But right now, the sentiment is that Israel is facing an existential crisis right now, right? A, a, at least attacks from Gaza at the minimum, but perhaps a multiple, multiple front war, Lebanon, so Lebanon, Syria, there's, there's already been flare-ups on the borders in the north, of course, in the West Bank, there, there's concerns and there's thousands of, of soldiers stationed in that area. And so Israel is facing a, a threat to its right to exist by a terrorist group that wants to obliterate Israel from the map in Hamas. Um, and so you saw that unity government being formed just this morning with Benny Gantz, who is the top rival to Benjamin Netanyahu, agreeing. And this is a hallmark bill of Israeli politics. Um, because it's such a small country and because it had been surrounded by rivals, adversaries, and, and enemies uh, over the years, um, these unity governments have cropped up in times of crisis. But that's not to say that Benjamin Netanyahu is going to be in the clear um, going forward. I mean, Israel, another hallmark of Israeli politics is <laughs> after the threat is gone, is doing a very detailed inquiry into what went wrong, what policies went wrong, and holding those politicians accountable for what went wrong. Well, I think there are also some concerns. I've, I've been reading various opinion writers uh, uh, this morning on this, that um, initially, because the horrific nature of the Hamas attacks is still being exposed, we're still seeing new videos and photographs of awful situations in which Israelis were murdered, gunned down in the street. We're seeing the, um, the kidnapped victims being carted away in golf carts and the like. So right now, um, it's, it, the sympathy is with Israel. But as Israel launches an increasing offensive against Gaza, and if, the Israel, if IDF forces decide to move in on the ground, there are people who are concerned that sympathy might shift a bit. That, in fact, suddenly um, the people who are not as strong on Israel as they are right now might begin to feel that the Palestinians are now victims as well. And that's a real concern moving forward. You're right, Bill. I mean, my kids have gotten a text warning them not to go on social media uh, out of concern that Hamas could live stream horrible things that they might be doing to these hostages, these Israeli hostages that have been taken at least 150 or so. Um, that have been taken into captivity into Gaza. But you're right. If this ends up in a block-by-block block urban war, th there's almost no way that you can avoid civilian casualties, especially when a lot of the Hamas infrastructure overlaps with, uh, with, with civilian infrastructure, with hospitals and mosques and, and, and public buildings in such a densely populated area. And this is why Israel has tried to avoid a ground war try to contain Gaza and Hamas rather than reoccupy it. Like had been, you know, there used to be 
uh, Israeli settlements in Gaza. Right? Yeah. Israel, the army had multiple bases and installations within the Gaza Strip until about 20 years ago. Um, let me read, if you don't mind, something that Thomas Friedman wrote in the New York Times this morning. And I think people who have followed Friedman know that he has always been, he's been for decades one of the leading authorities on uh, the Middle East. And, and here's what he said in his column this morning, in which basically the headline is, this is a time when Israel must be very, very smart. And, and just a piece of his column, he says, I hope the president, that President Biden is asking Israel to ask itself this question as it considers what to do next in Gaza. What do my worst enemies want me to do, and how can I do just the opposite? What Israel's worst enemies, Hamas and Iran, want is for Israel to invade Gaza and to get enmeshed in a strategic overreach that would make America's entanglement in Fallujah look like a children's birthday party. So he's pointing out the same thing we're talking about now. Um, it may seem, you know, obvious that what Netanyahu says we're going to wipe out Hamas would do is obliterate Gaza. But that is what Friedman says is the worst possible outcome. It turns the world's opinion again away from the Israelis. Yeah, look, this is happening with a backdrop of uh, Israeli-backed efforts to normalize relations with Saudi Arabia, uh, one of the biggest powers in the Middle East that the U.S. is urging. And it'll be very hard to continue those talks with these scenes of, of horrific uh, scenes on the streets of Gaza and in, in Southern Israel. And that's the goal I think for Hamas right now is to destabilize any sort of talk of uh, normalizing relations between Saudi Arabia and the U S uh, sorry, in, in Israel um, in the middle East right now. Uh, but also look, there was talk for a long time about Israel's occupation of Southern Lebanon as being Israel's Vietnam because it was such a tremendous toll on lives and resources and Israeli capital um, to, to, to have its presence in southern Lebanon. And this could make that, and a reoccupation of Gaza could make that look like you know, small potatoes compared to having to um, send a massive force in for a long term, uh, you know, occupying a, 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 a territory with about two million people, right? Um, so right now, what we don't know and what Israel said very little about was what their long-term goal is going forward. Is it regime, regime change? Is it just calculated strikes to take out Hamas leadership? Is it something more lasting? Either way, though, we know it's going to be a tremendous toll on the Israeli government, on the Israeli people. And what the Israeli leaders are asking for in the U.S. right now is to keep that in mind as these horrific images keep on coming out, that Israel's battling for its sovereignty, it's battling for its national security. You, you and I have both had experiences in Israel that relate to politics, you more recently than I. And I want to start by asking you about that. You were in Israel with Governor Kemp just a few months ago. Um, and, and one of the reasons Governor Kemp was there was because we have great commercial interests in Israel and they with us. Talk a little bit about that visit and what it said about the relationship of Georgia to Israel. You're right. There are deep ties between Georgia business and Israeli business. It is not one of the top importers or exporters of Georgia products. It's, it's sort of a more of a bit player. Um, but in terms of high tech partnerships, uh, one of the places we visited was Beersheva, which is uh, a university town in the desert, in the Negev desert in southern Israel where there's a number of high-tech companies who are investing heavily in, in Israel. And a lot of those jobs 
some of those jobs at least are coming back to Georgia. There's more than a thousand uh, jobs in Georgia that are directly tied to Israeli investment. But really, it's it's also the religious and spiritual connection. That was Governor Kemp's first trip to Israel. I could see it was my fourth. I'd been there multiple times before, but I could see the deep visceral connection um, that someone who is an evangelical Christian had when he visited some of the holiest sites. Uh, of course, not just in Judaism, but in Christianity too. Going up. Uh, to to northern Israel, to Sea of Galilee, to areas where Jesus once walked and yeah. once made pilgrimages as well, and and that was the sort of question that was put forward to him. There was um, with Netanyahu as well when he met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, is where he stood. One of the first questions Netanyahu asked was about the anti discrimination uh, bill in Georgia that's still pending uh, to make anti Semitism a hate crime. Yeah. My visit to Israel, um, in terms of politics, came many years ago. I was sent to Israel when um, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated. And, of course, the circumstances that surrounded that assassination have some resemblance to what had been happening more recently, which is um, Rabin was someone who wanted to find a way to have more cordial, peaceful relations, a two-party state, um, with the Palestinians and right-wing extremists began demonizing him and it led to his assassination at the time. And, and the reason I think about that now is I remember flying into Tel Aviv and immediately upon landing, going to the first, I went the day after the assassination, it was a huge rally in one of the largest squares in, uh, in uh, uh, Tel Aviv. Mm. Um, and there were literally more than 100,000 Israeli people there um, mourning his loss, but expressing their solidarity for the state of Israel. And it was an incredibly moving experience to me um, because it showed me that in times of crisis, um, the Jewish people of Israel uh, come together in an extraordinary way. And it's what's happening right now, despite all the political differences. So it's hard for me not to think back mm -hmm. on that two weeks that I spent there watching Israelis rally to support their government after a horrific assassination. Yeah, Israel's a sovereign nation with a government with all its problems and all its benefits too and its drawbacks and political infighting. But to the Jewish people, it's also a beacon of hope. Mm -hmm. It is a symbol of, of Jewish unity. And that is why what's happening right now is touching so many people, so many people in the Jewish community, but of course, so many people beyond the Jewish community because they're seeing uh, one of the strongest U.S. allies under siege, under assault by a terror group that is massacring civilians. All right. Um, obviously, this is a story we're going to be following for quite some time. We'll certainly look at it from the Georgia perspective whenever possible, but we also need to keep on top of it. It's a complicated story. There are nuances that we're going to have to watch as Israel prosecutes its war against Hamas, and we'll certainly uh, do that in the days and weeks ahead. But in the meantime, we've got to get to our final break of the show. When we come back, uh, let's talk about the fact, Greg Bluestein, that we now have a new list of witnesses that Fonnie Willis plans to call in the election conspiracy case against Donald Trump and his co-defendants, some pretty interesting names. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. Our colleagues at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you informed on all the developments in the Fulton County case against Donald Trump. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage into one place with the Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll get our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. Sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. We are here in the studio of WABE, Greg Bluestein and I, while Patricia Murphy and Tia uh, Mitchell are on the Hill where they're watching the Republican conference try <laughs> to fight through the battles to elect a new Speaker of the House. And of course, we'll talk more about that on our show uh, tomorrow. But be- before we go back to our political conversation, Greg, I I do want to point out to our listeners, yes, we are now on the air five days a week on WABE radio. You can listen to us live, but it's also important to point out that Political George's podcast continues as well. Now, there'll be a fresh podcast every day of the week. Um, We know that Cheney B., one of the master producers, will have that podcast available within hours after the show ends. So it'll be about as fresh a podcast as you can get, Cheney B. I'm already working on it now. <laughs> i tell you what. But your political news is still hot and fresh by the so, time it hits your feet. My point being, uh, you can listen to us live, but you can also get our podcast five days a week from whatever platform you get your uh, podcasts. Greg Bluestein, um, Tamara Hallerman... Our colleague had a pretty interesting story uh, in the AJC this morning. New witnesses that Fonnie Willis plans to call or hopes to call, they, these witnesses refused to accept the summons uh, that they got. So now they have to go through a court process to get them. One of them is Alex Jones, one of the masters of media miscommunication and conspiracy theory. Yeah, we can call them lies, too. <laughs> he built an empire broadcasting lies about, the, ranging from everything, the government controls the weather, mass shootings staged by actors, all sorts of lies. He lost court cases, very high-profile court cases, about those lies. Um, but now he could be a star witness. And we know about this because they have to file... Uh, basically a court action because they didn't accept service of these subpoenas because Alex Jones didn't accept service of these subpoenas. um, They now have to be signed off by a judge because he doesn't live in the state of Georgia. Um, But this really can offer a little hint of where the, the trial could go, where prosecution's arguments could go. Why Alex Jones? Well, partly because he is a key player in the run up to the January 6th, 2021 insurrection. And there'll be attempts to show that he was involved uh, in uh, you know the pro-Trump mob that stormed the Capitol, that he was also involved in this legal battle around uh, Donald Trump's baseless efforts to undermine Georgia's uh, Joe Biden's victory in Georgia, um, but also 
that it was an attempt to uh, disrupt and delay the presidential electoral count. Um, so I'm quoting here from what Fonnie Willis and her prosecutors wrote. Alex Jones will provide evidence to the jury of Kenneth Chesbrough's involvement in the conspiracy, including without limitation, as it relates to his participation in the march on the Capitol on January 6th. Yeah, apparently he was actually marching side by side with Chesborough to the Capitol uh, on January 6th and can provide testimony uh, about that. Yeah, and there will also be some uh, potential testimony about communications between uh, Alex Jones, Chesborough, and others that show a coordinated effort to overturn the 2020 election. And that, of course, goes to the root of Fonnie Willis's charges the indictment that shows a, that she hopes to show a criminal enterprise. And so an actor like uh, a person like Alex Jones, who wasn't indicted, but was someone who is involved in the pro-Trump efforts to overturn Joe Biden's victory, could be key to helping prove that there was a criminal enterprise. Um, we'll talk about a couple of the other witnesses who are on the list now. But before we do, I do have to say that when I think back to the trials in which Alex Jones was the defendant at Sandy Hook and other places where he's been sued for his lies about school shootings, um, on the witness stand, he's a very antagonistic, very angry uh, sort of defendant as he was in those cases. I, I can't help, you know, I'm a big fan of law and order. I can only imagine that whoever the district attorney is that decides to cross-examine him will turn to the judge and say, permission to treat the witness as hostile. <laughs> <laughs> because Jones is not giving anything up easily, I don't think. And no, and, and the fact that he has a, such a history of lies makes him a very uh, untrustworthy character too. So that could present problems. But just as a reminder, of course, just because he's subpoenaed doesn't mean he'll actually testify. These attorneys need to get their witness list together now, just in case they might decide not. To, he's too much of a hassle to even try to uh, put on the stand, but they have to have that witness list together now. Even if there's a even a 1% chance he ends up uh, being called to the stand. Okay. I want to talk about two other possible witnesses. Uh, Rona McDaniel, the chair of the Republican national committee has, uh, uh, been put on the list by Fonnie Willis. She's there because she too received communications from the White House asking her to help with recruiting the so-called fake electors uh, in states that uh, uh, were in contention at the time. Um, and uh, for her as the head of the RNC to come forward, especially because this trial is likely to play out in an election year, really puts her in a very awkward position, given that Donald Trump is likely to be the front runner for the Republican nomination. And Donald Trump has not exactly had a great relationship with right. the RNC, especially uh, as the RNC is still organizing debates that he thinks should should not go on at all because he you know, is already declaring himself the winner. But Ronald, th this part of this, this indictment is so important because one of the things that that Fonnie Willis is hoping to prove is the fake elector plot yeah. played a central role in this quote unquote criminal enterprise that Donald Trump and his allies helped orchestrate. And according to the filing, Ronald McDaniel was a part of a conference call with Donald Trump and another attorney, John Eastman, who's another defendant in the Fulton County case in which Eastman urged McDaniel to get the RNC support in identifying these would be fake electors, not just in Georgia, but in other battleground States that are mentioned in the indictment. So Fonnie Willis hopes that she can help prove 
that crucial part of the case. I, I, I do want to correct something that I said. The, these witnesses are on the list to be part of this early trial, the October, what's 23rd. supposed to be the October 23rd trial. I said Ron McDaniel may end up testifying in an election year. And in fact, she may be called back she might to be. testify yeah. in the larger trial that will take place next year. But we should say that these are for the October 23rd trials. Or, and Bill, you're right, though. Anything she says in open court in this first trial could also be used even without her you know, taking the stand, presumably, in a, in a later trial. So, um, There's another witness on the list. His name is Greg Bluestein. I know that we have to be careful uh, about talking about the fact that you've been called to testify, and I'm sure that the great Tom Clyde, uh, who is one of the finest attorneys you could have uh, for an organization like the AJC, is looking at the, all of the various nuances about this. But I think it's fair to say we can talk about the fact the circumstances that have led to them wanting you to be a witness, whether you ever become one or not. Yeah. And just as I mentioned before, just because you're on that witness that on that subpoena list doesn't mean you actually be called to testify. Um, I, and I was actually, uh, uh, called a subpoenaed by Kenneth Chesbrough's attorneys, not funny Willis, um, along mm. with Richard Elliott from WSB, because we both reported on that meeting of the Georgia Republican electors way back December 14th, 2020, um, our, our bosses, AJC editor-in-chief Leroy Chapman and our attorneys say that we're likely to file an objection seeking to dismiss the subpoena. And of course, Bill, you know, it's customary for major U.S. news organizations to seek to avoid having the reporters testify about information they obtained while reporting the news. I, again, I know you've got to be careful here, um, but I'm glad you pointed out it's Chesborough's attorneys who have called you to testify uh, because just from my point of view, what you and Richard Elliott um, witnessed that uh, morning when you happened upon this meeting of so-called fake electors at the state capitol would seem to me to be the sort of thing that a prosecutor would want to have uh, you talk about. I know you got to be careful about that. Yeah. And look, everything we reported that day, I was actually up with the Democrats in the third floor of the Capitol, but the state Senate covering um, the Democratic legitimate elector vote, right? Um, and to much to my surprise, as I've said many, many times, and I said on Twitter and I've said in stories and all this stuff, um, you know, I quoted, I called up members of the Republican elector slate and asked them, Are you guys going to do anything? Is this happening? And I've quoted several, at least one on the record, and I've talked to multiple of them. They say, no, no, we're not planning anything. So I was certainly surprised. I, I can. I'm assuming Richard Elliott was also surprised to see a number of familiar Republican faces in the state Capitol that day <laughs> huddled behind room 216 on the second floor. We will watch the drama unfold in terms of all of these witnesses, whether they've been called by the prosecution or the defense in advance of that October 23rd start date, which means, by the way, that we're just a little more than a week away from the beginning of jury selection in that trial, which is scheduled to start on October 20th. Yeah. And think about what a process this will be because we're, we're looking at the other and what could be the longest trial in Fulton County history is the, the YSL trial against the alleged street gang uh, that is still going on. It's taking months to seat a jury. And we still, I don't know if we still have a single jury seated in that trial. I know we have multiple reporters there following it, but I don't think we have a single juror seat in that trial. So this will be an enormous task at hand because who doesn't know in Metro Atlanta, 
Donald Trump or, or Joe Biden? Who doesn't know some at least a little bit of the underlying um, decisions, discussions that will help shape this trial? All right. Um, just to uh, remind our listeners, that trial is uh, of uh, Chesborough, as we pointed out, as well as Sidney Powell, who both requested speedy trials, which is an option that the state of Georgia offers to defendants. Um, we don't expect the larger trial of Trump and whoever, how many other defendants still are going to face the trial uh, to happen until sometime uh, next year. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. I want to remind you that we'll be dropping new editions of the Politically Georgia podcast every weekday from now on. You can look for new editions to hit your podcast app sometime around one o'clock each afternoon. All of this leading up to the October 30th debut of our new radio show, Politically Georgia, on WABE, Mondays through Fridays live at 10 a.m. We'll see you tomorrow on the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,